Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and uh, I'm joined by my co-host, uh, Chris, Chris Dorides, the Deputy Chief Economist, and uh, we're missing Ryan. Uh, Chris, where's Ryan? We are. Uh, Ryan went uh, up to Boston, went to, went to the baseball game with his uh, family. Ah, I, is it a road trip? That's what I hear. Yeah. That, unless he made a last minute decision, but uh, <laughs> yeah, he was planning to drive. I think uh, going to Fenway Park is kind of like a religious experience for Ryan. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. I've never been. So you've never been to Fenway Park? Nope. nope. Oh my gosh! You got to go. The uh, got to go. Monster. Uh, yeah, the bleachers. Uh, it, it's it's really an experience. Uh, not that I'm a Red Sox fan. I can't stand them, but uh, you know. <laughs> but still, uh, still, but still. And we've got Alan Blinder. Professor Blinder, good to see you. Good to see you. I'm very far from a Red Sox fan, but I have been to Fenway Park, so you're oh, right. Are you? You're not a Yankees fan, are you? Oh, you're from. Uh, <laughs> of course you are. Yeah. Well, oh. is there? Well, I hate. Well, if there's one team I hate more than the Red Sox, it may in fact be the Yankees. Oh so. my, I'm sorry. Maybe we yeah, should put uh, this interview right here. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd say that. I knew you'd say that. Well, it's a, such an honor and pleasure to have you. Uh, you know, I've gotten to know you over the years. I, I was trying to remember back. I know we wrote one paper together. Did we write more than one? I can't. I can't quite recall. We did. They we, both came out as Moody's. Uh, papers on the uh, financial crisis. Financial crisis, right. You know, Alan, it's funny when I've talked about you, I, I talk about you all the time uh, uh, in on the podcast in different venues. And the in fact, I just met, uh, a, I gave a speech in South Carolina to the housing finance agency heads. And there was a woman for who, who just took over the HFA for Pennsylvania and she knows you. I wish I could remember her name, uh, but she was talking. She goes, I, every time Alan says something or I read something from Alan, I agree with him. And that's it, exactly my experience. Well, it, good. Yeah. I, good. I, it's like, it's weird. I mean, there, I don't think you've ever said something that I disagree with, which makes might make this for a very boring podcast. I'm not Yeah, it's a little that. worrisome. Maybe we could do <laughs> yeah. something. Well, we just did. The Red Sox said. Who do you well, there you go. There you, you go. Oh, yeah. For the Phillies, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah, I do. You know, I'm a. All right. Yep. I'm fine about the Phillies. I just hate the Red Sox. That's because we always lose against the the Yankees. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> Not a threat. Uh, <laughs> Not a threat. Not a threat. But you you know before we kind of dive into the the matter at hand and you know obviously top of mind here is recession, inflation, monetary and fiscal policy, and all all the subject matter that. Uh, that uh, that uh, everyone's talking about. Maybe we can talk a little bit about your career. I was, you know, I, I've known you for for many years, but I never actually went and looked at your Wikipedia page, get, get a better sense of your bio. And it's like it's incredible. I mean, you, you know, you've been uh, at Princeton since the early seventies. In fact, you were undergrad at Princeton, and and then uh, got your PhD at MIT. And I didn't realize that. Uh, uh, Bob Sola was your was your advisor. Oh yes, he was, and a wonderful one, wonderful one, a wonderful man. Uh, yeah. What I'm doing right now, if I wasn't on this uh, uh, podcast with you, and I will go back to shortly, is writing a bio of Bob Sola. Uh, oh. oh, who's oh, still that- alive and kicking at late age ninety eight. He's he's amazing. Oh, I didn't I didn't realize that. Is that amazing. right? Yeah, I mean, he's just a force, uh, you know, really uh, an amazing uh, intellect and has driven a lot of economic thought, you know, over his career. Uh, And then the the cool thing about your career is you've been able to kind of move gracefully back and forth between academia and uh, uh, government, uh, uh, working in policy circles. And at, at, at one point, you were in the Council of Economic Advisors, and then you went off to be vice chair of, of the of the Fed back in Bill Clinton era in the 1990s. Uh, I, I'm just curious how does how does one do that so gracefully? I mean, well, just, I it was graceful. <laughs> I'm not sure Alan Greenspan thought it was so graceful, but uh, there's a point. Uh, uh, but um, 
on the way in, it was kind of natural since I was involved in the Clinton campaign, in the original Clinton campaign in 1992, and a lot of people that were so involved wound up. I mean, that happens in every presidential race. The winning team winds up with White House and other uh, positions. So that seemed kind of uh, natural, though I must say, it, it, I'm glad you said gracefully, but from my point of view, and I'm sure this is true of most people that enter a White House from academia, it's a different world. Uh, young people as uh, Fed staffers, you know, very good mm -hmm. young people. I used to give them as part of their introductory briefing. I said, we've got three runs over here. Uh, the short run means I needed it yesterday. <laughs> uh, the medium run means you've got an hour to do this because I've got a meeting that I, I need the paper. The long run means you got till Friday. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't have to tell you that is not the tempo of life in academia. Uh, so that was a gigantic uh, adjustment. Moving back from the to the Fed was a little bit a little bit like moving back to academia in huh. terms of the pace, uh, except in terms of crisis, which you'll probably want to talk about. Right. Rare blissfully, the Fed moves at a kind of a stately pace and uh, doesn't release papers until they're ready and doesn't opine on things until it's ready and thinks about it and does research. You know, this one hour time frame is an unknown thing to the Fed most, uh, uh, most of the time. Uh, and then for me, then it was back to academia where um, What's the right way to put this? Um, I think the thing that was the hardest adjustment to me, though it had been a little bit hard prior to my government service, was going back to uh, Never Neverland. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, academics get mm -hmm. embroiled and in, interested in things that you wonder, why are they doing this sometimes? Mm -hmm. What does right. this have to do? I, I, I've more than once written that uh, talking about a particular paper that the only contact with the real world this paper makes is the title. Right. They usually have titles that sound like, oh, this is about something. And this is going to be interesting. It. Yeah. Although yeah. I, think, uh, I, I think I just lost patience with that after three years in government. Yeah. Although I get the sense, you know, some academic departments are becoming more focused on more practical issues, you know, the, seem more topical and relevant. Uh, yeah, I think there's a little bit. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, yeah. I think there's more. And even in macroeconomics, which was probably the worst offender of this, uh, mm -hmm. you'll remember the various and sundry intellectual wars we had in academic. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Economics, uh, many of which blissfully left no trace in the real policy world. Right. Policy workers just didn't pay any attention. No, they were watching right. Moody's Analytics or something, not the Journal of Political Economy. Uh, well, when you were vice chair, you actually pulled off a unicorn, I think, a soft landing for the economy. Yeah. That's, am I right? Is that the only time the Fed kind of sort of pulled off a fall? A, a, no, a I've, I've just written a paper. I've started with a webinar, and now it's a paper that's going to come out in the Journal of Economic Perspectives. Uh, the, the short answer to your question is, it's probably the only, quote, perfect soft landing. Mm. Mm. But there have been a number of other landings that are kind of softish, mm. the word I used. I noticed Jay Powell picked up that word. Uh, by softish, I mean either led to no recession at all, just kind of a slowdown, or a very small recession. Uh, you'll remember the recession that followed the uh, uh, in two in two thousand, forgetting the NBR date. Two thousand and one, yeah, I think almost nothing. I mean, it disappears. Yeah. Annual data, you don't even see it. Yeah. So there've been a number of uh, episodes like that, but I think the mid nineties was the one perfect uh, soft landing. And, and just for the for the listeners who don't follow this as carefully as we do, the soft landing being your. Oh, yeah, that you, you pull down the economy, you take the steam out, either to stop 
either to bring inflation down or to stop what you think is incipiently higher inflation in its tracks without doing much damage to the real economy. Yeah. And 94, 96, when you were vice chair, that was a period when the economy felt like it might be overheating, inflationary pressures were developing, and you kind of calibrated policy just right yeah. to bring the economy in, slowed it down, quell the inflation, but not push the economy into recession. I think we do. I think that's yeah. right. Yeah, very good. Um, which ob obviously is apropos to the current environment. Oh, uh, I get asked about it a lot. Okay, I'm sure you do. And I saw your op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, too, about that, about navigating. And we'll come back to that. But I do want to kind of just round out you know, just the, your, your background in your, in your history. You're also a business person. You started a, a company. Is that Two. company still operating, the Promontory uh, Interfinancial? Uh, they both are. Uh -huh. uh, I'm out of both for years now. I see. Uh, there, so there were two companies, and, but, and each one was sold in one case to a bigger company and one case to private equity. Got it. Got it. Well, that's a good way to end. So uh, I feel like was two for two. They were both. Yeah, that's, right. that's, that's really good. And, and, and here's the other thing that struck me about your career you're just incredibly energetic and prolific. I mean, how many? I, I said I was going to try to figure out how many books you wrote, but I kind of lost count. How many, yeah, how many it's, it's hard to count because some of the, you know, they're edited books. I'll give yes. you an example, which makes it most difficult to account. Uh, my textbook, which was ah, written with right. Will Baumel, who's now deceased, is now in its 14th edition. So you want to count that as one or 14? There you go. Uh, I'd count it as 14, just personally. Well, if you count it as 14, you're probably in the 35-ish. There you go. Oh, my gosh. Because there are like 20 others. But some of them are edited volumes and some right. regular books just by me. And you have another book coming out? You, it's, I do. Yeah, in October. You, you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, it sounds yes. fascinating. I think the title is self-explanatory, especially <laughs> to professional economists. Uh, it's called A Monetary and Fiscal History of the United States from 1961 to 2021. Freeman and Schwartz wrote this very, very famous book called A Monetary History of the United States. It ends in 1960. So I didn't want to take issue with them. I sort of picked up after. Uh -huh. But the, other than the dates, the two most important words in the title are and fiscal. You right. don't find discussion of fiscal policy in Friedman and Schwartz. You find a lot of it in uh, this book of mine that's coming out in October. And that, much more than monetary policy, pulls you into the political milieu. Hmm. Because as I don't have to tell you or your listeners, fiscal policy is made in the political world. Absolutely. Not, not in a technocratic uh, world. Is there one anecdote that uh, that's in the book that uh, you that kind of you would call out something that's particularly interesting that people don't really know about or anything? Yeah, well, yeah, I guess so. That's a hard question. If I had been able yeah. to flip the pages before you asked it, I might do better. But yeah. one thing I thought of, and I've quoted this elsewhere, I came upon a passage. This goes back to the '60s. Okay, you were, you were born then, right, Mark? Uh, oh, yes, indeed, I was. <laughs> Uh, back in the late 60s, when the government was fighting the Vietnam inflation, there's a passage in the 1968, I think, so that would have been a February 68, economic report of the president, in which it says, get this, that uh, battling inflation is mainly the job of fiscal policy. Oh, oh really? <laughs> can, can you imagine anybody entertaining that thought now? Wasn't that sort of monetary, modern monetary theory, sort of? Well, kind of? maybe. I don't know what that is. But, <laughs> yeah, <right>. okay. <laughs> but I was shocked. When I came, I was looking for something. And when I came upon this, I sort of blinked and read it three times. That is interesting. Maybe really you say that? Yeah. Wow. Did, that is, did. What a change in, uh, in thinking uh, around that. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Here's another one that I thought of back in the early 70s. This you may know. Um, both Milton Friedman and James Tobin, who agreed on basically nothing ever, <laughs> um, were opposed to the independence of the Federal Reserve. 
Really? Both for very oh. different reasons thought it should be under political control. Yeah. There's another thought that you don't hear from economists. That is really surprising. Milton Friedman. Wow. In particular. Well, can you do you recall the logic? His logic? Yeah, Milton's was he didn't think unelected bureaucrat technocrats should ever have that much power in a democracy. I see. Oh. And Jim Tobin's was more that these unelected bureaucrats were not representative of what the society really wanted. They were much tighter on monetary policy and more inflation phobic and I see. so on than uh, he, he was and then he thought the body politic. Wow. It's amazing or, how the general thinking around that has changed. Wow. Yeah, has, has it ever? And for I, I think you'd have a hard time finding more than two members of the American Economic Association, which has what, 20,000 members. That would be against the independence of the Federal Reserve now. Maybe President, former President Trump, maybe. Oh, he's not a member. <laughs> he's okay. That's good to know. That's good to know. Maybe Peter Navarro. I don't know. Oh, yeah, Peter Navarro, his advisor, his former advisor. Anyway, hey, we should get down to business. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I didn't ask you the most important question, but I don't, you know, maybe you don't want to give the secret sauce. Where does all that energy come from? My goodness. I mean, I, what is that all about? I don't know. It's inherited. My mother always told me I should work hard. Uh, right. But like I think her. I think actually, Mark, if there's a secret sauce, it's uh, efficiency, mm. getting minimizing the wasted time, mm -hmm. trying to get things right the first time or at least the second mm -hmm. uh, time, and not let yourself get distracted on. Um, uh, a whole lot of things that are potential distractions, mm -hmm. keep your nose to the grindstone. Uh, you know, I don't want to exaggerate. It's not like I spend all my waking hours working. I watch Yankee games, for example. Yeah. <laughs> but I must say, I didn't when I was a young man and trying to do all of this. I didn't watch Yankee. I didn't have time to watch Yankee games. Yeah. I'm an old guy now. I, I feel I've earned the right to watch some Yankee games. Well, you certainly have. And, uh, uh, what a career. But let's get down to business. Um, the economy, uh, recession, and, and before we dive in, GDP obviously came out this past week and it declined in the second quarter. Hey, Chris, can you give us a kind of a rundown on the GDP report? Uh, you know, what's your view of it? Uh, what's your sense of it? Uh, sure. So GDP came out uh, yesterday on Thursday. It was a, uh, well, if I had to collect, uh, classify or use a, a single word, I would say it was lousy. Hmm. Lousy report. Um, economy did contract by negative 0.9% in the second quarter. Probably the best thing we can say about the report is that that was better than the first quarter, which was down negative 1.6%. Uh, the biggest drag in the second quarter was uh, inventories. So that contributed or subtracted 2%. Uh, from the GDP figure. So you might discount that. We've talked about that in the past on the podcast, given the volatility and the swings in the inventory cycle, especially now as we transition from goods to services, you might not read too much into that. But uh, there were other parts of the uh, report that were equally uh, just troubling. Consumption uh, growth is slowing. It's not negative, but uh, spending is, is slowing relative to the first quarter. Uh, investment was actually negative. It did contract. So fixed investment, residential investment in particular, down about 0.7%. And of course, this was the, the second quarter report through June. We already know in July that housing construction and sales are down. So that doesn't uh, bode well. And then government spending also subtracted a bit uh, as well. It's a bit of a drag as we move from the fiscal stimulus uh, uh, that we had last year to uh, this year, where there there isn't uh, that uh, that additional support, uh, net exports uh, was actually positive uh, this quarter. We had again talked about this in the past. In the first quarter, we had a big drag from net exports. This time, we actually got a bit of a boost. Again, lots of volatility in this number, a bit perhaps uh, subject to some revisions. So we don't want to read too much into that, but still, it is uh, it is part of the uh, the overall GDP uh, calculation. 
So let me stop there. Uh, okay. Well, lousy, that's a pretty good word. Is there anything redeeming in the report? Any silver lining? Anything positive? Could have been worse. Could have been worse. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. I hear you. Uh, let, me answer, let me answer that. I, it, Chris's answer is right. It's lousy and it could have been worse. The one redeeming factor I thought was the continued movement in the consumer away from goods and towards services. Mm. Because that initial move and the slowness to get out of it is, is, a, is a good share of what people are calling uh, supply problems. Consumers stopped buying services and only wanted stuff that came in boxes. So, yeah, that makes sense. So you're so there's this uh, during the teeth of the pandemic, we we're all sheltering in place and buying a lot of stuff. Now that things have reopened, we're traveling, we're going to restaurants, we're going to the Yankee games. Some of us are, and uh, and not spending as much on stuff. And so this this pivot in in terms of what people are spending this money on was evident in the report. And you're saying. That's a that's a very positive thing because a lot of the inflationary pressures we're observing now is on the good side of the economy because of the strong demand and the supply chain disruptions and this yes. may ease some of those pressures. Yes, you know, a lot of people, including myself, have often been sloppy in saying there are the supply constrictions. And there were some in China when factories shut down and things like that. But for the most part, it's not that the supply went to hell. It's that this, the shift from goods, mm. services to goods, all of us, there weren't fewer ships, there weren't fewer containers, there weren't fewer trucks, there weren't fewer boxes, but the demand for all those things just soared. Uh, it wasn't enough to go around. Well, let me ask you, Alan. Getting, getting out of that will help us. That, that makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you, um, and we'll come back to inflation in just a second, but before we do, uh, just to complete the conversation around GDP, because you know we had two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, and historically that's uh, pegged recessions, I think, pretty well. I mean, I think it's got it exactly right since World War II. And it's a rule of thumb. It's not the arbiter is the business cycle dating committee, a group of academic economists at the National Bureau of Economic Research that look at a lot of data. But nonetheless, so you want to weigh in on this uh, debate we've been having collectively around, are we, did we experience a recession? Uh, I think it's a close call. I think the way things look now, uh, I wouldn't call this a recession, although it does meet the media definition of the two negatives in a row. When you have an unemployment rate that's 3.6% and hasn't budged up, and jobs being created well above the replacement rate. I don't know what you guys recommend the replacement rate is, but I think- 100K. Yeah, that's about what I think of it. Yeah. And instead we're getting 300 plus, okay? It's hard to think of that as a recession. Having said all that, and this is sort of lead, bleeds into your next question. Uh, I think a recession uh, in, let's just say in the early part of next year, um, I don't know the exact timing, is more likely than not. And if in fact we start go, let, let, let's, let me give you some hypothetical numbers. Suppose yeah. Q3 comes in positive two, uh, which is a Wall Street forecast that just popped into my- That's our forecast, two, about two for Q3, yeah. But then we go negative in Q4 and Q1. Mm. I believe the National Bureau will look back to the two negative quarters and date it back there. Mm. Mm. Now, will that happen? I don't know. Uh, so that's what I meant by it's very iffy. Uh, but, you know, right now, the tone and feel of the uh, economy is certainly not like a recession. Yeah. I mean, when you're creating, I think in the first half of the year, on average, we created close to a half a million jobs per month. And you're, as you pointed out, 100K is kind of what's consistent with stable unemployment. Layoffs at record lows are pretty close. Unfilled, unfilled open positions at record highs. Hard right. to square that with the idea that we're in recession, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. But but you uh, you make a great point. You're saying, look, if maybe we weren't exactly in recession, but if 
six, nine months down the road, we get some negative numbers again, maybe the NBER dates it all the way back. To Let me give you a, a concrete example that you're very familiar with. Um, uh, Lehman Brothers collapse came in September 2008 and the whole economy fell off the table. Right. The National Bureau then looked back and dated the recession as starting in December of 2007 which I frankly think is a mistake. I dated it, I did my, the blinder dating, which nobody pays attention to, yeah. September 08. But oh, the is National, that right? Okay. Yeah, but the National Bureau dating is December uh, 2007. Uh, I think that's based on jobs though. Is I think we started, lose, didn't we start losing jobs as, I think it was January. Yeah, maybe, but you know, it was yeah. a little, and, and on the GDP there were, small positive growth numbers in those quarters. Yeah. It's weak. Yeah. Uh, no, it's a good point. It was it, it looked like what we used to call in the old days a growth recession. You know, slow growth but not an actual recession. And then Lehman Brothers came in. Boom. Uh but they look back to December. So I, I could I could imagine something like that happening if we have a real recession. Well, it's kind of like the the 2001 recession similarly right we had a negative kind of we started off we had the collapse in the equity market the bubble burst and yeah. it was growth a little really negative, then a positive then a negative right yeah and then i think if we had not had 911 uh which obviously crushed the economy in that in that period uh we might not even they may not even called it a recession yeah it's possible yeah it's possible yeah um, well, you know, in terms of recession risks, I mean, the, the kind of the uh, most obvious reason why we're in this predicament is this very uncomfortably high inflation that we're, we're suffering from. And, uh, you know, to avoid recession, that inflation has to come in here pretty quickly, I think. Otherwise, the Federal Reserve is going to continue to jack up interest rates quickly mm -hmm. and, and, and ultimately push us in. Uh, to understand where, and I'm really curious where you think inflation is headed, but before we do that, I'd really get like to get your diagnosis on why this high inflation, you know, uh, and should, should we have uh, pr predicted this high inflation a year ago, which most people did not. I certainly did not. Uh, I certainly did not. Yeah. I was a prominent member of Team Transitory, as you may remember we're burning our uniforms now <laughs> <laughs> i've done a mea culpa i think you've done a mea culpa i have several several uh, mea culpas yeah but here's the irony mark and it's yeah. the, this leads to answer your question the reasoning that team transitory had was correct and it's still correct the unfortunate thing was picking transitory the word transitory, thinking that these things would dissipate quickly. They are not, they have not dissipated quickly. So here were the here are the here are the four reasons for high inflation. And this is familiar to you. One is excessive demand, which I think is way overrated as a cause, but it needs to be on the list. So that's oh, what we say that again. Way, way, way. Overrated. Okay, got it. But I wouldn't put it at zero. Yeah. Um, uh, so, those, so that's part of the fiscal stimulus that we had in uh, continuing into 01 and monetary policy being uh, laid off the mark, letting it uh, zip along uh, too fast. The Fed's admitted that. Um, so that's one. Second is what we were just talking about before about post pandemic adjustments frequently called supply chain disruptions, which, I, as I just said, is mostly a misnomer, but you know the basic, we all know the basic idea. Yeah. Uh, uh, third, the oil shock, yep. which was moderate until the war in Ukraine and then got very severe and now looks to be dissipating a bit. I'll come back to that. And then again, associated with the war in Ukraine, the food shock. So, you know, you were mentioning my book on economic history. This, of course, evokes the 70s and 80s when we had these uh, oil and food shocks. Oil and food shocks lead to stagflation. 
And that's what we're having now. Now, why do I say Team Transitory had it right, quote, unquote? Um, the supply problems will naturally, and with some help of, of businesses adjusting, dissipate. And I think that's happening now. Uh, but it wasn't happening six months, six months ago. Uh, the oil shock looks already, you know, knock on wood to be dissipating, but who knows what's going to happen. Fingers crossed. And ditto with the food shocks. We've got these nice sounding straws in the wind about opening the ports in the Ukraine to grain shipments and some good reports about good harvests elsewhere in the world that may bring down grain uh, uh, prices. So the, I think the reasoning behind Team Transitory was correct, and I think it will be proven so hopefully soon. I watch every CPI report hoping, okay, this is the worst. Uh, <laughs> so far, it's just been a hope, which is why Team Transitory has been so, so wrong. You know, I hear I, I I think our my rank ordering of the causes are for this high inflation are similar. I'd put though excess demand at for the current inflation, not the inflation we were experiencing a year ago, but the current inflation, excess demand at pretty minor, modest. Minor. That's what I said. Oh, okay, okay. Just I just wanted to. Okay, then darn, we still I, we still I, agree. We still yeah. agree. You're looking for a disagreement. It was oh darn. Okay. It yeah. was the word I choose. I think in the popular discussion, it's being overrated. Overrated. Yeah, I'd say pretty close to not really important at this point. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I use as evidence for that, and you probably do too. We have the same unemployment rate now we had before the pandemic. Yeah. And we lived for about two years with unemployment rates like that with not the slightest hint of inflation. If this was being driven by excess demand, like in the Vietnam episode. Yeah. I, th you, I think you would see the unemployment rate going down, down, down. Well, and the other thing is, if you're going to blame it on uh, fiscal policy, you know, that, and that's what most of these folks blame it on, the American Rescue Plan, the $2 trillion legislation that, that uh, was passed in March of 2021. How, did, how can you connect the dots to all the very high rates of inflation all across the certainly yeah. the developed world you just i mean yeah. that's, how do you explain that that that's got to be russian invasion oil prices ag prices that's got to be supply yes. chain issues you know i can't produce vehicles because i can't get chips therefore you know yeah. vehicle prices are going to go skyward all over the planet you know that so these are supply shocks yeah yeah, yeah. it's got to be global now convince the republican party of that yeah exactly good point uh okay so Therefore, if those are the cause, most mostly Russian invasion. Oh, here's the other thing I just want to pass by you, see what you think. And this is the thing that really surprised me. And by the way, I don't think the high inflation we're suffering now is a surprise. What is a surprise was the pandemic and the Russian invasion. And that ultimately that created this high inflation, which, so it's not that we were wrong about inflation abating at this point, but we were, we were wrong about the pandemic going away and we were wrong about, well, we didn't even, the Russian invasion wasn't even on the radar screen. Correct. But here's the thing I want to pass by you. The thing that I think really sent the, this to Def, DEFCON 1 for the Fed was the fact that the in Russian invasion, the spike in oil prices caused inflation expectations to become seemingly un, unanchored and tethered. And that's when the Fed said, oh, my gosh, you know, you know, I was going to raise rates, but I was going to do it in a more you know, steady way. Now I got to go and jack up rates very quickly. And that really is what brought the things to where we are today and why recession risks are so high. Yeah, I think, I, yeah, I think yeah, I think there's a lot of truth, to that, especially if you include in that the corollary that uh, it started showing up in wage increases. Yeah. That are, now, I mean, they're way below inflation, but they're well above, let's call it the steady state. If we want to go back to, if we think we're going to eventually go back to 2% or so inflation and 1% or so productivity increments, 
let's say one and a half and two, then you want wage settlements at three and a half. Yeah. Uh, and not five and a half. Yeah. And that's probably has to do with uh, those uh, expectations blissfully and coming back to my theme that team transitory will eventually be proven right. Yeah. Those inflationary expectations peaked and then have come down. Exactly. Yeah, uh, exactly. They're right where the Fed would, at least the bond market measures of expectations are the right ones I think are most important. They're back in. They're right where the Fed wants them to be. Yeah. You exactly. know, something everybody on earth almost, except you, forget is that the tips are based on CPI inflation. And yeah, exactly. CE inflation. Yeah. Tips, tips being uh, uh, inflation protected security. So oh, they yes. calculate break even inflation and expectations based on tips comparing it to right. uh, uh, treasury yields. Um, I was going to ask you one other thing about that. Um, shoot. Oh, here. I know, I know you don't do um, explicit forecasts. No, I leave that to you. I know, but I'm sure you'd be fantastic at it. But, <laughs> but, but just generally speaking, let's say we're 9% ish. CPI, consumer price inflation, year over year through June. When do we sort of get back, do you think, to something that's in the kind of the Fed target range? And for CPI, that probably is as high as two and a half percent. But kind of sort of when do you think that would, if everything sticks to script here? Yeah, that's the, that's the clinker, of course. Things yeah. are not sticking to uh, script. I can imagine getting, no, well, let me put a footnote to that. Okay and change your question a little. There is, as you know, a humongous way out of historical experience spread between CPI inflation and PCE mm. inflation right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to change your question to PCE inflation, which is Fair what enough. the Fed is after. Uh, I think we could, I could easily see us getting back to where the Fed would like that to be in the second half of next year. Oh, really? That fast? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Is it, yeah. is it also core consumer expenditure deflator or just the top line PCE? But the top line, but that's- Top line. Okay. That's where your things going according to script is crucial. Yeah. So exactly. that the script there to do that is oil prices either flatlining or going down and ditto for food prices. Great. If they keep soaring, that's not going to happen to headlines. Hey, uh, Chris, you heard Alan's forecast. What, what should, how would you answer that question? Where, when do you think uh, cons the consumer expenditure deflator uh, will be in inflation be back to something consistent with the Fed target around 2%? So in a, uh, given my recession odds, <laughs> I, I probably would agree with him. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Alan, he thinks we're going into, oh, Alan, I should have asked you, you're a, and we have to come back to it, but you're not saying that's not based on a recession, right? That forecast. That that's uh, it's probably based on a, it's basically oh, okay. a recession or weak slow, weak yeah, yeah. growth recession. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think the 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 odds of a recession are uh, certainly above fifty percent. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. So, All right. I, I want to come back to that in just a minute because we're going to get our recession. We are aligned. Line. We're yeah. perfectly aligned. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're finally. Gonna come back finally. To Wait, no, no. We'll, we'll see if you're perfectly aligned. Okay. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But before we go there, uh, I want to go back to the, the Federal Reserve and this, in your, the, the op-ed you wrote in the journal. Uh, do you think at this point the Federal Reserve is getting – monetary policy right so they raised interest rates last week 75 basis points three quarters of a point chair powell kind of indicated that you know maybe we get a uh, we're going to get more rate increases but the 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 size of those rate increases won't be 75 basis points in all likelihood right. so maybe we get another 50 basis points and if you look at market expectations and their interpretation what powell said and what the fed's been saying we get the funds rate target which is now at uh, two and a half percent, the top end of the range, right. to something like three and a half percent, maybe by early next year. That's kind of where monetary policy is guided things and where we are today. Does that make sense to you? Does that feel appropriate to you in the current context? It does. It does. Okay. Uh, here's what I, and by the way, I've been, journalists have been asking me for, I don't know, six months, eight months, where I think the Fed is going to top out on this. And I've been saying three and a half 
percent. I told you you're a forecaster. You are a natural yeah. forecaster. You Lately, I've said three and a half to four. So I, I think it's a little bit more, but that's not a very big difference as, as these things go. So, yeah, I think they're, this is what I think they're going to do. Again, with the proviso of things go according to script, because there have been nothing but surprises for yeah. the last mm -hmm. few years. Uh, I think 50 more basis points in September is very, very likely. And I think there'll be strong forward guidance on that between uh, then and now. So on the day, everybody will be expecting 50. After that, I think the committee is going to scratch their heads and have a strong debate over whether they should just hang there for a while or do another 25 at the next meeting and watch developments. Uh, so that would put it at three, three and a quarter, and then sort of be, you know, they're always data dependent, but there are times when you're extremely data dependent. Like this last meeting, 75, that was really not data dependent, unless no. something really strange happened. Right. They were doing 75. But there are times when they really are data dependent, where the chairman of the Fed comes into the last few days before the meeting and makes up his mind then and not before, depending on the uh, how the uh, data flow looks. We could be in a position like that at the end of this year. Right, right. Uh, and and uh, you'd think that's probably that path would be the, the, the best path to potentially achieve that soft-ish landing. That yeah, given that they started late, you know. Yeah, given that they started late. Not an accident that they shot in 275s, which by Fed standards is shooting the moon. Yeah. Uh, they were late. They, they were, were late. They yeah. were catch up. Okay, so let's... Given that, uh, let, let's then let's talk about recession odds, uh, and uh, maybe I'll couch it this way because we've been obviously talking about this on all these podcasts and with everybody. Everybody wants to know what your probability of recession is uh, starting sometime in the next uh, year, so between now and mid next year, and let's say over the next two years. Because um, interestingly enough, and I'm curious in your thinking about this. Most economists, when they talk about economists, they don't, they don't uh, about recessions. They're not thinking next quarter, next two quarters, even next year. They're even kind of thinking now two years. And that feels really weird to me, given the current environment. If we're going into recession, it feels like that's at year end, early next year or something like yes, that. Yes, it feels weird to me too, Mark, for that reason. And also because you're in this business, you know that two year ahead forecasts are worthless. Yeah. Nobody can see, you know, you may be Except able for Chris's, Alan, except for Chris's, Chris's, in all fairness. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are pretty good at looking three, six, nine months ahead, but uh, 18, 24 months ahead, I, mean, I don't even try. So the answer to the question is, I think probably a recession starting in the fourth quarter of this year or the first quarter of next year is the most likely scenario with a lot of variance around that forecast. Mm -hmm. Really a lot of variance. So and if, a if 60 I percent chance of an NBR okay. recession. 60? You said 60? 6-0. Something like that. Yeah. Chris, where are you now? What's your assessment of the probability of recession over the next year? One year, I'm at 60%. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, two years, I'm at 65%. 65 percent well, well i'm gonna ignore that other five chris that's okay. <laughs> that's just too well, far ahead <laughs> well you know here here's why he does that uh, alan because we have this forecast philosophy that we don't make major changes in our forecast unless we have a high level of confidence in that change and that subjectively is a probability of over two-thirds so he goes he's going right up to the line i see right up see to how the he, very strategic in his in his uh in his uh uh, probability assessment. Well, I put them at even odds. I'm a little bit more optimistic than you, uh, you guys. Uh, uh, but that, I'll have to say that varies, you know, day by day, hour by hour. It's 
uh, I, you know, the risks here are, uh, are I'll tell you what I did Chris was going over those, uh, second quarter GDP numbers. The one that, oh, this was going to be our, uh, our, I'm going to initiate the number guessing game since I was. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Very good. Okay. So we're playing the game, are we right now? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was about to blurt it out on this point. Oh, oh can I just just pause for a second. Hey guys, listeners, remember the game. I'm sure you do that. We each provide a statistic. The rest of the group tries to figure out what that is based on questions and clues and deductive reasoning. And the best, uh, uh, the best statistic is one that's not so easy. We all get it and not so hard that we'll never get it. Uh, so, but far away, Alan, go ahead. What's your okay, So mine was, which I wanted to talk about was domestic final sales in the second yeah. Oh, you gave it away. We're not even playing the game. 0.02. Oh, oh, I see. I see. He's you're going the other way. You tell, he, he, you're telling us. You're, he's, he's, he, he, this is a great innovation of the game. I have you guys guess. Yeah, have us. He tell us what it is. I thought I copied down from the BEA negative 0.3. Uh, anyway, that's well, less so what trade you, oh, oh. inventories and government or domestic final sales. Yeah, oh, domestic final sales down 0.3 percent. In so the that was the thing that I found most worrisome in huh. that report. So that's your all sources of domestic spending, consumption, investment, government, and government spending, and and you know it's not very negative, but it's negative. And in the previous quarter, Chris probably got this in in his head. It was well positive. I just want to go a little geeky just for a second, uh, get get your view on it. But, you know, this goes to the quality of the GDP numbers and they, they get revised. You mentioned this. They get revised yes. a lot uh, yes. over the years. But, but yes, but the biggest revisions are not in that hunk. They're right. in the inventories and the export net exports. Okay, so, good point. Those, those also get revised. They will get revised. Good point. But here's the thing I wanted to mention. If you look at gross domestic income, which conceptually is the same as gross domestic product, but you know, yeah. added up from the uh, income side of the accounts, people's incomes and corporate profits, that kind of thing, that's been very strong during the pandemic, twice as strong, I believe, as GDP in the pandemic. And in Q1, it was up meaningfully it was up 1.8 real gdi right. gross domestic income was up 1.8 percent do you put any weight on that uh, i do, I do but we don't have the q2 on that no right. we don't we don't that comes that. in late yeah well and that's one of the reasons why we don't pay any attention to it because it, it it's yeah, a month exactly. late you know so but but okay. we we yeah i was taught by alan greenspan in the 90s to watch that one too yeah hey, you let average, me ask you this. Average them. oh sorry chris go ahead I suppose you average them. That's the. Well, that's what this, the. Actually, the GDA you know, is doing that now, right? Yeah, Publishing the average of the two. Yeah. I think uh, J the CEA under Jason Furman, they wrote a nice paper saying, hey, the best uh, way of looking at this is a, just a simple average of GDP plus GDI. It gets you to closer to reality and uh, subsequent revisions, I believe, in GDP. Um, oh, so, Alan, uh, do you have an, a go-to indicator or indicators that you have to gauge which path we're going down the the kind of uh, growth recession or the actual outright NBER recession? Uh, yes and no. I'll tell you the two things. This is going to be obvious from what I said before. The two things that I'm watching like a hawk, so to speak. Yep. I, don't, I don't watch like a hawk. I'm not a day-to-day -day forecaster. But it's um, uh, oil prices and food prices. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. My view is that we're, we got hit by a stagflationary shock. Two, yep. two barrel stagflationary shock, as happened in the 70s and 80s. They look like they're dissipating now. And I hope they will. Uh, but if they take a turn for the worse, uh, we're in big trouble. Yeah, I, I hear you. Hey, uh, we're at the, just to do another one, another uh, uh, stanza of the game. Chris, do you want to give us your statistic? Sure. Um, yeah. Well, my number I was understood the game. I thought I was supposed to come up with something. Oh no, we all play the game. Okay. Yeah, we take actually, Alan. If you get the answer right, we have a cowbell for you. <laughs> Honorary cowbell. Yeah. So this, this, these are big stakes here. You know? <laughs> so so and actually, we have listeners sending us cowbells. I'm not kidding. 
you know. Uh, that so you don't run out. Huh? We don't run right. out. I got, and we got, you know, apparently cowbells, you know, you go to, you go to Europe, every hill, every hamlet has its own cowbell. So I've got one up on a shelf over there. Oh, okay. Well, you'll have to pull the, that out. If from the Jackson Hole Conference. Of many oh, there you go. There, <laughs> I'm sure they have cowbells. Yeah. So, Chris, what's your statistic? So mine, uh, so there are lots of numbers that came out this week. So a lot, yeah. lots to choose from, but I think the most, one of the most important is 2.61%. 2.61%. Is it from the GDP report? No. no. Is it from the... It hints, yeah. You already, uh, you already alluded to it earlier. So is it from the, it's not from the employment cost index. Nope. No. Uh, PCE report that just came out today. Nope. Right. It's a it's a statistic that came out this week, though. Uh, yes, I got I uh, I pulled it uh, last night. Well, well, okay, that didn't really answer the question. Well, it, it's daily. <laughs> it's a daily number. So. Oh, it's a daily number. So that gives oh. it that gives you a lot of. Uh, oh yeah, is it the security two points? Is that, that be the tips break even rate? Or it something. is very yeah. good. Yeah. Oh, yeah, see, I think that deserves. That's a cowbell. No, I, I mean, the, the facts. But daily, of course, eliminated all the things I was thinking about. I don't watch daily numbers, but. What's that? The five-year, five-year forward? No, no, no. No, the, that's uh, the five-year five break-evens. Break evens. Is that five-year yep. break-evens? Oh, okay. Yep. And we already mentioned the importance uh, for Fed policy. Yeah. And as you the said, other thing I would add is that it's down from 3.6 in, right. uh, in late March. So it is moving in the right direction. Right. Well, the, the five-year break is the Mark, It's almost right where the Fed wants it to be. Yeah. If you take 0.4 as the more historical gap between the two price indices, yep. the Fed wants that to be 2.4. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Well, that was, that, that was a very good one, uh, uh, Chris. Uh, and uh, Alan got it. Got it right it away. Did. Okay. Uh, I, I got I, the many hints. I'll do, I'll do mine. And this might be on the hard side. So, uh, uh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. But it, is it, it from kinda, this week? It? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is from this week. It, it's from two different reports. Okay. And, and the statistic is the same 5.1%. 5.1%. ECI year over year? Yeah. That, that's very good. The employment cost index uh, is up 5.1% year over year. That came out this morning. That's the, the best measure of. Uh, labor compensation wage growth because it controls for the mix of of industries and occupations which can you know uh, create havoc with the uh, with the wage statistics so it feels like underlying wage growth right now is about five percent ish and as alan as you pointed out for that to be where the we'd want it so it's really not adding to inflationary pressures it's got to be something closer to three and a half that's two percent is inflation and throw in some productivity growth and you're around three and a half percent yeah. Okay. What's the other 5.1? That came out today too. You should know this. Uh, savings rate. Oh, Is that right. Oh my oh. gosh. I thought, oh, Chris, way to go, man. Yeah. Uh, I don't have Ryan here today. So yeah. 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 That's exactly right. The saving rate fell. And this goes to uh, all that excess savings that you know, built up during the pandemic. And before the pandemic, the saving rate was consistently 7%. During the pandemic, as we all sheltered in place and there was a lot of government support, that obviously shot up. Shot up. And uh, uh, we now have, as we estimate the, uh, and now we're starting to burn off that, that excess saving because saving rates have fallen below that 7% threshold over 5.1. But we still have about two, by our calculation, $2.5 trillion of excess savings. Saving above which would have occurred if not for the pandemic. And that's, that's a lot of saving. Hey, I, I wanted to ask you a question. Way, I just the, want to add to that. Yeah. That's one of the, as, as you're toting up the pluses and minuses, that's one of the reasons not to expect a recession. Yeah. Yeah. And here's, let me ask you this question, which is, I'm just really curious if you are uh, thinking about it the same way. It feels like consumers uh, are not out, spending with abandoned. They, you know, they have all this excess saving. It's sitting a lot of it in their deposit accounts because we can see exactly how much is sitting there in, in their deposits. So it's cash that they could just use now, no problem. Oh, yeah. It's not like they have to sell an asset or go out and borrow any money. So they got that cash, 
but they don't seem to be using that to, you know, happy days are here again, obviously, but they're just using it just enough to supplement their purchasing power as it gets hit by the high inflation. Is that, does that, does that characterization of what's going on here sound right to you? Yeah, that's the way it looks. It's not yeah. the way I would have guessed uh, six, nine months ago. Yeah. I would have thought that more of that would be uh, pulled out of the uh, checking account, the yeah. savings account, and spent. But, you know, if you ask me after the fact, not a forecast, to explain it, I, it's what you said. I think the incomes have held up quite well. Yeah. You know, we're not having layoffs and mass unemployment and wages are doing in nominal terms are doing well in real terms not so yeah and uh, i think that's well, a, that's you know i to me so uh, people don't feel they have to go to their uh savings account and yank out money yeah i mean at the end of the day i I think the firewall between uh, a growth recession and a outright recession is probably the consumer, right? The American consumer. And this is one reason to suspect that that firewall may actually hold and we don't go into recession. Yeah. As I said, okay. that's one of the arguments on the no recession side. Yeah. Of the okay. but let's turn to quickly to fiscal policy. And I, I should ask, Alan, do you have a hard stop here? Do you have a few more minutes? No, to, I'm okay. You're okay. Okay. It, it, we'll probably go on for another uh, uh, five, ten minutes or so. Uh, so we'll okay. be done. Uh, but I, uh, let's let's turn back to uh, fiscal policy, and uh, it does feel like a flurry of activity here. More recently, it feels like we're getting some legislation through. It's not game changing legislation. Uh, you know, we've got the Chips uh, uh, Act uh, to help fund uh, semiconductor uh, development here in the United States, primarily. And it looks like we're going to get a piece of legislation, uh, kind of a slim down, very slim down version of the American Families Plan, which was part of the Build Back Better agenda. You know, more funding for climate related issues, uh, for uh, AC, uh, Affordable Care Act subsidies, um, you know, a few, few other things. Uh, but what do you think about the fiscal policy response to, you know, now uh, to what's going on? Is there anything you think fiscal policymakers could be, should be doing to help with regard to what's going on with inflation? Or is that really, really up to the Fed at this point? It's mostly up to the Fed. Yeah. Okay. This is what I brought up, that 1968 quotation. Yeah. It's basically up to the, there are a few things, if you want to call it fiscal policy, where the government can nibble around the edges, the most obvious of those is the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, that's a real nibble around the, uh, the edges. You know, there's the gasoline tax, uh, which is very small at the federal uh, level. Uh, the and the prescription drug uh, the, the presumed diminution of prescription drug costs. So there are a whole bunch of things you can nibble around uh, the edges. But the main thing I hope fiscal policy won't do, and I think it won't, is what it did after the last crisis in 2011, 12, 13, which is turned strongly contractionary and try as hard as it could to kick the economy down the stairs again. Uh, leaving the Fed out there uh, alone, trying to prevent that from happening. Uh, I think that was a huge mistake. And uh, I, about every third day, I worry that we're going to do that again. Uh, but I think partisan gridlock is probably going to stop that from happening. Uh, well, that goes back to our paper, right? I mean, we did that paper doing the counterfactual coming out of the financial crisis, you know, what if, uh, and really, I thought nicely showed, of course, it was our paper, so it was nicely showed <laughs> that, uh, that uh, you know, that very restrictive fiscal policy was really in the post-crisis period, you know. Yeah. I went back to this in writing this book that you were asking me about. Oh, oh, is that right? Okay. If, uh, yeah, and I talked about that episode. If I remember correctly, now, unfortunately, at my age, I rarely remember correctly. I think it was a fiscal contraction 
the average of percent and a half of GDP for three right. consecutive years. Yeah, sounds, it three sounds consecutive right. years. That's four and a half percent of GDP. Yeah. I mean, that with the sign reversed is the same size as the 2009 stimulus. Yeah. And in the context of the household deleveraging that was occurring in that period and the recapitalization of the, of the financial system as the as the, yeah, and an economy that was still weak and the unemployment rate was still high. It was amazing uh, we grew at all. Really. It is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So as I say, about every third day, I worry we're going to do that again. Yeah. Uh, but uh, on the two out of three days, I think now we won't do that again. Yeah. If you were king for the day and you didn't need to, you know, send this through uh, the uh, through the legislative process is there something you could do on the fiscal side that could move the dial here more meaningfully on inflation over the next year or two not much okay I can't really think of uh, I, I say housing policy what do you think I mean you know clearly I that is a much longer run uh, first of all much longer run and not mainly federal you know, all kinds of cities and towns and uh, counties have very restrictive zoning uh, regulations, which as the demand for housing goes up, just comes into price more than into quantity. But almost zero of that is federal. Uh, yeah, I would I argue, you know, uh, like a LIHTC, low income housing tax credits, that really juices up uh, returns to affordable rental construction. And that's a, you know, a, a program that's been in place. The infrastructure is there. It's just you just turn a few dials and you juice that up. Mm -hmm. You can build multifamily a little bit more quickly. You're right. It can't, it's not going to solve the problem in the next year, but maybe over the next two, three, four years, it might add more supply, have some impact. Yeah. I mean, all the things that have to do with that sector of the economy are going to be long run. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's no, there's no. <laughs> There's no slam dunk kind of. If I do this now, I'm going to get some relief by the by this time next year on inflation on the fiscal side. I, I don't. Yeah. Think okay. So. Don't All right. So just checking. I didn't think so, but uh, I was just. If checking. we have a way without really ridiculous agricultural subsidies to increase uh, wheat production in the United wheat and corn production in the United mm. States quickly. Now you do have to plant and harvest, you know. Yeah. So this is not going to need happen. some rain and not too much rain. And yeah. So forth. Not about to happen in the next two yeah. months. Yeah. Okay. Hey, I want to end our conversation um, with a uh, discussion around. Well, okay. Let's suppose we go into recession. Uh, what is? What do you think the nature of that recession is in terms of severity? I mean, are we looking at? Typical kind of garden variety, something less severe, something more severe. Do you have, a, do you have any uh, sense of that? Yeah, I would think uh, garden variety is the upper limit, so less okay. than a typical recession. And the reasons are several things that uh, several things that we've discussed here already, and one that we haven't. Uh, one is the um, uh, large stock of liquid assets that consumers are holding. So as those income flows stop being so robust, they have someplace else to turn. Secondly, I think it's likely, though not on a large scale, that Congress stops fretting about the deficit and even the Republicans stop just thinking every minute what they can do to make the world worse for Joe Biden. Uh, and you get a little fiscal cushion from that. And the thing we haven't talked about is that the, the current composition of the Federal Reserve doesn't look to me like a bunch of people that want to see the unemployment rate go to 10%. Hmm. That as things, as and if things start to deteriorate, I think you'll get a rapid monetary policy reversal uh, if it's needed. Now, you know, on uh, on Chris's forecast, it may not be needed. That yeah. everything is sort of mild, and uh, and the Fed just needs to flatline. You know, push the Fed Fed funds rate up and then flatline it for a while. But if things look worse than that, I think they'll start cutting it. 
Right. Very good. So uh, I, I think that you put it nicely. So at worst, it would be a garden variety. So that would be GDP down two and a half, three percent. We lose three, four million jobs. Unemployment goes to maybe high of six percent ish, something like that. That would be kind of garden variety. So nothing worse than that. That's worse than I'm expecting from the okay from okay. the next recession. Yeah, because if we go into recession, your your thinking is that that would inflation inflation is coming in anyway if we don't get shocks further surprises on the supply side of the economy and this would with a recession you get there just a lot faster obviously because you're hurting killing demand and you get get the inflation right back down quickly yeah okay all right very good um well it was it's been a pleasure i'll have to say uh again uh i agreed with I think everything you said. We have I, I, enough disagreements. We have to talk baseball. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the only source of disagreement here is the Yankees and Phillies. But I have to say, you know, uh, I can see why you like your Yankees. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I understand. And it. I'm not hostile to the Phillies. They rarely play the Yankees. I, yes, it's I know. Rare, so. You you would you would be hostile if we actually won a few games, I, I think. But yeah, just saying, you know. Well, the Yankees play the Phillies. I'll root for the Yankees, but okay. it will <laughs> never be like the Red Sox. Well, you're gonna have to come. I'm gonna invite you down because uh, you're in Princeton. Do you live in Princeton? You're you're living in Princeton. Yeah, yeah that's where I am right so, now. So you can easily get to a Phillies game. I'd have to have you come I, down. I and have, have historically been to Phillies games, but they're fun. Since the pandemic, I haven't been to anything. So. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, very good. Well, thanks so much, Alan, for spending time with us and uh, really uh, enjoyed it and um, appreciate the, the time. It, thank you. Uh, and with that, listener, we're going to call this a podcast and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Take care now. Bye.